Thank you to our sponsors for supporting this episode of Troxel, BQE Core, and Avail. We'll share more about them later on in the episode. Welcome to the Troxel Podcast. I'm Evan Troxel. This is the podcast where I have a conversation with guests from the architectural community and beyond to talk about the coevolution of architecture and technology. A little bit of housekeeping up front in this episode. I'm on the road this week, and therefore I'm recording this in my RV and sending it out via SpaceX's Starlink internet service. If it sounds a little different, and I'm pretty sure that it does, it's because I'm not in my studio. I'm actually in a campground overlooking a lake in Oregon right now. And if you're curious to learn more about my remote work experience with Starlink, you can tune into episode 267 of my other podcast, Arcaspeak. I'll put a link to it in the show notes for this episode. All right, let's move into the topic at hand for this episode. I welcome Robert Ewan. Robert is the CEO and co-founder of Monograph, a software company revolutionizing the future in how architectural projects are managed. Having worked as an architectural designer in his hometown, Chicago, and ultimately setting his roots down in San Francisco, he discovered his passion for designing software solutions for the AEC industry. A serial entrepreneur, a trained architect, and a zealously productive person, Robert is an active member and avid public speaker within the architecture, design, and engineering industries. He graduated with a master's in architecture and a master's in science in digital technologies from the University of Michigan. His experiences working with some of the industry's most renowned firms and designers, including SOM, Halliburton Root, and Blue Homes, led him to discover a void for a simple cloud-based project management application that was tailored to the industry. As such, he co-founded Monograph alongside Alex Dixon and Mo Amaya to help architects and engineers oversee projects in an integrated, user-friendly, and ever-evolving interface. In this wide-ranging discussion, we cover topics including leadership in the profession and how it's often mistakenly designated by seniority or title, how to protect firm culture, and how Monograph is designing productivity apps for architects that focus on the experience and are as frictionless as possible. We also touch on Monograph's section cut conference and ongoing webinar series, their willingness to create and curate a practice operations resource library for the profession, and so much more. And I hope you'll not only find value in it for yourself, but that you'll help spread it around and in turn add value to the profession by sharing it with your network. This small act of generosity helps support the show and helps broaden the reach of conversations like these to elevate the industry. I would also appreciate you visiting the sponsors who help make this episode possible. Thank you so much. And without further ado, I bring you my conversation with Robert Ewan. Robert, welcome to the podcast. It's great to see you again. It's been a while. It, it has been. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. I wanted to talk to you because we, we've had the chance to, to talk a few times in the past. And, you know, when Monograph started, 
with the website side of the business and you've pivoted to like practice operation side of the business. I think there's a lot of really interesting things that we could talk about. And I wanted to start with culture and what it's like to run a business that has grown like crazy in the last, let's just call it the last year, year plus. I don't know, like you, you can put a finer timeline to that than I can, but I was listening to the practice disrupted episode that you were on with Evelyn and Janine. And you, I think you said you guys went from eight to 65 people, something like that in a pretty short amount of time. And, and you're, you're expecting to go even bigger. So I want to talk about like this idea of work culture and what you're doing right, because what, and all I can see is all I can hear about actually are those numbers, but tell me like, What's that like? Because I think there's a lot of people who work for firms that are really struggling to attract talent. And it's kind of a employee's game right now to there's a lot of shifting in the industry going on. There's a, a huge challenge with turnover in the industry already. And so like just I know you're you're not in the architecture industry. You're in the AEC tech industry for sure. You're adjacent and you're seeing what's going on at firms. And I would just like to start off the conversation kind of talking about talent, attracting talent, culture, things like that. So I don't know. Where do we begin with that? <laughs> I, well, it's a really big topic. We can start anywhere. But let's, we can just start with broadly speaking how important culture is. And what a, what a big mistake if you don't think culture is important. And like, if you don't have a culture, if you don't have a good culture, you essentially can start to distill down that like you might not be giving your team a sense of purpose. And without a sense of purpose, I think what a lot of, lot of uh, young professionals today are asking, well, why, why stay? At the end of the day, it's, it's a fact. We only have one life. Uh, we should enjoy the time. We should, be, we should have a sense of purpose. Uh, we should be fulfilled as we try to strive and achieve that sense of purpose. And culture essentially facilitates that possibility. It's a gravity. It pulls people that are, have the same essentially like belief to drive talent towards an organization. And equally, when you don't have the right culture, it drives talent away. And that is a two-way conversation. When I, and I, you know, I've, I've seen George Valdez's posts on LinkedIn over the last months or years even where He's talked about giving advice to people who are out there hunting for work, hunting for a culture, hunting for a place to be in the industry and talking about the kinds of questions that would be important, should be important to ask of the company. And those, those surround the ideas of culture. They surround the ideas of, of how, the, how they run their business, what their expectations are. And I think we've seen a lot of crazy stuff actually come out recently, uh, just from the SciArc uh, Basecamp video that that was posted on YouTube around kind of architectural culture and what's expected coming from a certain group of people, um, and how that I think that there's probably larger shifts going on than they're aware of. They seemed very disconnected from that, and so I, I agree. Like that is a two way conversation, and like you said, if if you don't have a culture, it could drive people away. And at the same time, like I think like I would be interested to hear from your perspective where you see culture comes from, because I've often felt like culture is just is an outcome of the people who work at who are together, part of a cohort at a place. But then I can also see it from the other way around, which is top down, which is the vision 
and why we do what we do. And, and, and maybe it's a little bit of both. It, well, it has to be a little bit of both. I think if culture is derived from a bottom-up scenario, uh, you're essentially creating an organization that doesn't have culture in the very beginning. And it's essentially yet to be defined until, until the pool of employees define it for you. And I'm not saying that that's a wrong way, but I don't think you have as much control if you're a business owner wanting to drive culture forward. We, we can also assume that like if all you do is drive culture, uh, you don't have enough, let's say, information feeding back up to you. So it's a two-way street. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You do, as a business owner, I think it's really important to understand what is a culture that you want and what is a culture that you do not want. Uh, and you have to essentially set those guardrails fairly clearly. But then everything else in the middle, uh, you let it foster. You need to define the parameters of what culture is not and what culture is. So I'll give, give an example. Like we clearly have a four-day work week. Some might interpret the four-day work week as like a lax, a relaxed culture here at Monograph. Right? We, we, don't, we don't push harder than, let's say, a company who works five days. I, I would argue that that's completely wrong. We don't settle for anything less. Like we don't achieve the hypergrowth you, you've all seen in the last 12 months without being extraordinarily focused, loving the work we do, but like also setting the bar extraordinarily high. So like they're they're not essentially like correlated between like working less and achieving less. Working less just means we have to work a little bit smarter. Working less is part of our culture of believing that like the return on you as an individual will pay dividends over time. The entire premise for a four-day work week was us as founders, me, Alex Mo, dream that like personal time for you to invest back in yourself is critical. You as an individual compounded across an entire team pays dividends back to the organization. You don't have any time to invest in yourself if all the time you have left are nights and weekends. That's really the beginning and the step, like the origin point of the 40 work week. And also why strategically we have it on Wednesday and not Friday. It's interesting. Interesting. And, and I'm wondering how many, how much of your staff is made up from people from the architectural industry? Yeah, they fat throw really it out there. Great question. But if I were to throw out like a percentage, ten mm-hmm. percent. Okay, it's higher than I thought. Actually, I I mean you've grown a lot, but when you guys when you were eight, it was a, it was higher, right? <laughs> <laughs> when we were eight, I think it was closer to like you know a hundred percent or like ninety percent of the of the company was that had an architectural background. We're, we're, a, we're a technology company. So like our engineering team is the biggest team. And most of the engineers don't, like their backgrounds in computer science. Their backgrounds in software engineering. And when you started Monograph with Alex and Mo, was this one of the things that was right in the beginning, the four-day work week? Yeah. And was that in response to experience in the architectural industry or was it just kind of looking down the road and and like planning out how you guys wanted your life to be taking those things that you just spoke to into consideration like where did that where did that come from well prior to monograph uh alex mo and myself we we ran a software agency which also operated on a four-day work week so essentially it was like we when we started the agency we already wanted to essentially build a life and build a business around this ethos. 
when Monograph grew big enough and we spun it out from the agency, it naturally inherited that culture. Mm, okay. And what, what, how big of a driver has that been for your culture and attracting people? Oh, huge. I, I think we were extraordinarily ahead of the curve at the time. And it drove a lot of talent our way. The real question, though, like when you start to drive a ton of talent is, are you attracting the right type of talent? Right. The better questions now are like, well, okay, we don't have a, let's say, talent pipeline problem. The problem we have is essentially a selection criteria problem. Right? What we don't want are people who are chasing four days of work and would like to spend the rest of their time playing video games. Right? Like that, that would be like extraordinarily counterintuitive to what we're trying to achieve here. So setting up a very robust uh, interviewing process is extraordinarily important to maintaining that culture so we don't we don't hire the right we don't hire the wrong people yeah that's interesting to me because what are the quality it makes me wonder what the qualities are that you're looking for i mean you you spoke i think to it in a, a minute ago you gave us a peek about using that time to as for experiences that bring more benefit to the individual and back to the the company right but what are what are you guys specifically looking at there well at, at a very high level it, they have to essentially like they have to match towards our company values and morals baseline outside of like the execution and the ability to pull off the work that we need the work to be to be done we need we need alignment around being people first having enough empathy being extraordinarily curious having amazing tenacity to essentially like solve problems. These are like criteria that are like baseline part of our interviewing process of finding not just great talent, but like the best talent. When you guys started doing this and you started seeing success in this and finding people that did match up with those values, what other ways did it benefit your company that you maybe didn't foresee up front? And I'm and the reason I'm asking about all this culture stuff is because I think this is a huge blind spot for a lot of architecture firms that are out there. They're not asking these kinds of questions. They're trying to fill seats. Everybody's hiring right now. They're looking for warm bodies, right? To, who know how to push the right buttons in the right order and rev it. It's very much the conversations are not about the things that you're talking about right now. So just to give it a little bit of, uh, where, where where that's coming from? I, that, those are the trends that I'm seeing happening, and, and people are like, "Well, hire it doesn't. We don't care who you are. You, you know, just just come join us." And I think what you're talking about is asking a series of questions that really matter to create alignment for the long term. Yes, because if you imagine at the end of the day, we're all human beings, and like our ability to get along with each other, our ability to work well with each other, outweighs the individual tactical skill set. Right. If, if you put two people that will never work well together, fundamentally, like how does that help the business? If you're, not, if, you, if you're a principal in a firm, how does that help you pull off that project? If the team that you're building naturally does not get along. It's not just bodies. At that point, like you might, you might not hit deadlines because like every, there's friction at every single meeting. There's communication problems because like the styles are very different and they're not clear, right? Like the, the work ethic is all over the place. Some work really, really hard. Some work don't work hard at all. 
and you're driving essentially more resentment within the team or within that studio, how does that help the business? And, and my, our fundamental belief is like, it doesn't. It, it actually would cause more harm. And we have to be very careful of protecting culture. And we have to be extraordinarily mindful and thoughtful in how we build team. And if you do all the work up front, uh, it pays. Like the team, the, the team can accomplish amazing things that you have never imagined. Yeah, I, I think that, that those, these are all kind of the unforeseen either detriments or attributes, positive attributes of doing that due diligence during the hiring process to assemble the right people with the right chemistry together. And I don't even like to say like-minded. I like to say like-purposed in that regard because like-minded doesn't give a it, – it, it's a little bit too narrow in what's possible then if we're all like-minded. But if we have a, a – if we share a purpose, uh, that to me it, – maybe it's just mincing words, but that to me just gives a, a, a little bit stronger foundation to the idea of what's possible. It, it just makes that more – have more potential to me. It, I totally agree. I, there's a common saying in tech world, like we're always looking for culture fit. Um, and I think we're missing a blind spot if you're not also looking for culture ad. It's not always about fit. Uh, and you have to understand that like as a company grows, obviously the culture is going to change. Um, you, want, you want it to change for the better. Uh, so you're always looking for talent that not only fits a team, but can potentially add another layer to that team for the better. So, so I asked you earlier, like where this came from and you guys started with this model in mind, how hard would it be for a firm to switch over to a model like this? I mean, they, it's hard for them to compete with you now because you offer this. And there's a lot of people who have made the shift from architecture to technology, you and me included. So how let's just say they they can't compete with you so they're going to join you <laughs> in in this kind of offering it sounds really hard i just want to throw that out there how would they even attempt to do that and you guys like i i mentioned earlier you were measuring time you see how much time people actually spend and i'm wondering how much of this just comes down to actually looking at the effort and the time that people are putting into their weekly project actual time that they're actually spending working on projects versus time that they're putting on their time card that just they're in the office or they're work, they're quote unquote working. I do think there's a huge advantage of starting a company with this versus switching over. I think the, the switching costs uh, for this type and this massive culture change for any organization, regardless if you're in tech or in any other industry, uh, can be can be very, very difficult. Hey, and I would also question, like, is it appropriate for every industry? And is it appropriate for every business? I, yes, we do it here at Monograph, but there's no, I, I have no authority of saying, like, this should be the trend for the entire world, right? And I think for every business and every industry, they have to make their own choices of what is the appropriate thing for their, for their practice. But I think it, it's extraordinarily a lot easier if you start from the very beginning. Not impossible if you want to switch. If you were to want to switch, you have to be extraordinarily thoughtful in how you pull it off. And what, what are the reasons that you're doing it for? And to remember those reasons as you start to make these uh, complicated 
decisions and the trade-offs that you have to make in, in fully executing, converting from a five-day work week to a four-day work week. Yeah, and I don't think the biggest driver is just four instead of five. To me, it's more about looking at the, you know, and I, there's a lot of architects at, who, out there who work incredibly hard, but there's a lot of different types of teams inside of architecture offices. And there's just like this general umbrella agreement to everybody works the same schedule, right? Um, and I get that, like business has to happen on a schedule potentially. That's harder to do when you're working remotely, but asynchronous tools have, have enabled us to do that. Um, but just thinking about how many hours a week is actual concentrated work versus happenstance, you know, conversations that are happening that again, aren't negative necessarily to the overall process. But when you think about the actual numbers of hours worked four seems like a, a pretty logical number as far as number of days to do that concentrated work when it's, when your butt's in the chair and you're working on the computer and you're doing the Revit and all those things, it just seems like the right feel for that. And I'm sure there's data that either backs that up or, or dismisses my, my idea completely. But I'm just, I'm just wondering, like, I mean, you guys settled on that and it seems like there is an actual number of production hours per day and, and those numbers add up to something and firms could look at ways like this or something different than this, but in the similar cultural vein to attract talent by kind of just taking a look at their data way more closely instead of just saying, well, this is the way we've always done it. It, And I think that's the, you know, that's the downfall for most businesses. If you start to think this is how it's always been done. It, It naturally prescribes that business as like, we're not willing to change and we're not willing to change. Well, the the world's evolving very quickly. It's changing whether you like it or not. Yeah. (laughs) Regardless, right? Like it, if you imagine, we are now in, we are, we're still in COVID like the last two years. And the entire philosophy, how the broader world works, shifted immediately. You have to, you have to accept that like evolution change is going to happen. The choices you have is like, well, how do you adapt and how fast do you adapt? Mm-hmm. Proactively or reactively. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's interesting to think of. I, I I think about how we're seeing some global trends out there about how younger generations are. I, I asked you in the beginning and you said you didn't know about this, but I was reading about this lying flat movement. And I, I have a, a snippet of text I'll read here. Uh, it's one of the 10 immediate risks listed in this year's World Economic Forum Global Risks Report. The one most likely to be overlooked is number eight called global youth disillusionment. According to the report, the result of young people facing their second global crisis in a decade is at best temporary disruption and disillusionment, and at worst, permanent scarring and lost opportunity. How can we prevent the pandemic, to your point a minute ago, from sapping the potential from an entire generation, and where can youth find hope? And I think about looking at firms saying, look, this is how we do things. This is how we've always done things. This is how we do, this is how the whole industry does things. And they're not seeing the advancements that they might be seeing in other adjacent fields. Uh, We're also seeing automation and AI and firms literally saying, we're not interested in this kind of stuff and not evolving. I mean, when I meant, when I say all that kind of thing, I mean, what, what are you guys, what, what do you think when you're dealing with, you're working directly with firms when it comes to your software, what are you guys seeing in the industry happening? Uh, 
at least with our customer base, extraordinarily willing to change, extraordinarily willing to adapt and embrace software um, to drive more efficiency, to drive transparency, and essentially give everyone a meter for how they work. Like at the end of the day, like I, I can simplify Monograph fairly simple to like, it's, it's your gas gauge within your car. Right? Like we, we drive and we always know how much gas we have left, how fast we're burning that gas, and when do we need to stop by the next gas station to fill up. What's fascinating to me based you know my personal experience and then what I still see from, uh, from the industry who has not adopted a monograph-like tool is that they're operating without the gas meter. They're driving and they have no idea when they're going to run out of gas or not. And that, that's the first problem we have to solve. It's like, we get, these guys give everyone some level of transparency to how they're doing. And when we do, we, and within our customer base, they embrace it 100%. Yeah, one of the trends that I've seen, and it's not limited to Monograph, you definitely included in this, is how there are new software offerings out there that are giving more people more ownership over what's actually going on when it comes to the bottom line of the business or the implementation of the building code or the specifications process. And like all of these things that I just mentioned are not like the sexy side of architecture, right? But they are absolutely essential to the project actually happening. And I think it's really interesting to see this trend happening where tools like monograph tools, like upcodes tools, like, uh, I don't know what the right one is for spec. Maybe it's e-specs or something like that, where when people are building the model, it's building the specifications and therefore there's just more exposure to that kind of thing. Tell me about like that, how intentional that is within monograph and maybe other things that I'm not bringing up here in regards to these trends, because I think traditionally a lot of these things were in silos or they had gatekeepers or red tape and all kinds of things. And, and to me, these, these are trends in the positive direction in the industry. Well, here at Minecraft, it's, we, take, we take product development very intentionally. And we, we always want to remember, like, how are, we all, how are we in service to our customer? And are, is the work that we're doing bettering their lives today, but also moving the culture of the entire industry in the right direction that we, we see as most appropriate? At the end of the day, it's more about transparency and understanding how to actually execute the not the not so sexy part of like pulling off a project and get that learning to to the younger designers faster to build that muscle at an earlier stage of their career uh, that that should always be front and center as we continue to roll out new features and further the product development here at monograph um, it has to be it has to be if not we don't we're not essentially living up to to the mission, the vision of the of the organization. That's really interesting thinking about it from like building healthy habits early on, because I think there's so many. Let's just say there's there's tools out there that have an incredibly difficult time pivoting to offer those kinds of things. They're the the eight hundred pound gorillas that are existing, and and I can only you know there's a lot of things that people hate about those they don't want to use them they they avoid using them because they're so difficult or they're so opaque or they're not asking the right questions or they don't have a great ui they don't have a great user experience like all of those things that people now that they know what software is actually capable of because of all the apps on their phone 
start starting to look at in business applications and things like that. And so going back to this idea of building healthy habits early on and tools enabling that to happen versus the opposite, which is we see it all the time, like people working in Revit and using dummy tags for this. And they're always doing workarounds and they're always looking for shortcuts. And because the software isn't doing, it doesn't, doesn't work like how they think. It's really interesting to kind of think of it from that perspective and why firms might want to be interested in investing new tooling for their practice and for the industry. I think it's an important topic because I think this is like a, a macro trend that's happening within, let's say, within all software and technology space. Generally speaking, like the hyper-focus in UI and user experience has been primarily focused on apps that are B2C, businesses to consumer. So these are like your standard, your, your DoorDash, your Uber, your Instagram, your apps that are like designed for the consumer experience. And what we're seeing now is like there's a huge uptake in like in businesses, technology companies that are B2B, which is what Monograph is. We are our primary customers are businesses. But you have to essentially pick up the exact same traits. They're they're not they're not essentially exclusive. Businesses like, are made of people. They are. <laughs> uh, and, and it's surprising like it took technology a little bit longer to figure that one out. But I think I think that's for the it's for everyone's good that we're figuring it out now. Uh, Monograph being one of those companies, I think a lot of other modern software companies hyper-prioritize the human behavior because businesses, like you said, are made of humans, made of people. Uh, regardless if you're selling to a business entity or not, like the people who operate the software, the people who have to essentially add the data in for the results to come out are people. Mm-hmm. Do you have a sense of how difficult it is to learn a new tool for a firm to adopt a new tool? And let let's maybe we'll we'll push it down the road. Like actually, what it all the sunk costs and the, re, the all the reasons why people don't switch to a, a a new tool. But what is it? Is it easy? Is it hard? Like, what's your guys' experience with what's Monograph's experience with having people switch tools midstream? Let's just say in their their firm's life. And this is where like, I'm extraordinarily proud of our product engineering team. We've designed a product that's extraordinarily easy. And this, is, this has to be. We need to make it as frictionless as possible. There's a couple underlining like, philosophies and matrices that we have to use to make those decisions. First, we have to understand that like, work, changing workflow behaviors is easier than changing just generally behaviors speaking and what's what's fascinating is like okay we do not want to change behaviors because it's extraordinarily difficult what we're trying to do is uh, essentially build a muscle uh around a new workflow but the behaviors around interacting with that workflow are very are very much the same so I'll give you an example we're all architects at least in our prior prior careers and we've all done timesheets timesheets is a behavior that we all do and it doesn't have to change. But that, that timesheet data can be extraordinarily powerful if extracted and utilized in the right way. And this is where Monograph is like, look, you can switch today and nothing, your normal day-to-day behavior and how you have to work do not change. You still need to understand a project timeline, so we need that information. And we still need timesheets from, from the team, ideally daily, but if you want to enter time once a week, it will work. 
the behaviors have not changed. And I think that's what really makes the product a lot easier to adopt. Products that are really hard to adopt essentially are asking you to make too many behavioral changes up front. So the contract, the upfront contract is too high. And that and that's what really drives a lot of customers away from products that aren't aren't designed for usability and they're making they're making you change too many behaviors up front. I'm gonna push back and say behavior is not the right word. <laughs> I think they're going through the same motions. They are tracking their time. I think that we could probably agree that the behaviors of time tracking are way more nuanced and crazy than than anybody would care to admit. And I've, I've said it many times in the firm, and I'm sure you've heard this as well, is that time cards are fiction. There's incentives to not put time on projects. Uh, if you do enter your time once a week, you're you don't really know what you did seven days ago or three days ago even. Right. <laughs> so, so behave, the behavior I feel like does need to change. And I, the reason that I wanted to bring this up at all, other than just like, this is something we can laugh about because it's sad is, is that you're getting to the, I, I, I would imagine that you're talking about why this is important. Why? Because you said there's, there's so you can get gold out of this you can really know thyself in a much more comprehensive way if it's done right and if it's not fiction. And and it's interesting to me to think about our industry as, you know, selling time for money and and what goes along with that, but also how people are incentivized to to not track it truthfully, which then makes it kind of worthless. It actually makes it entirely worthless right you can't proactively plan those future projects because the data that you're using garbage in garbage out is if it's fiction you can't appropriately plan the next project because the prior time is just a bunch of lies and fiction it's the state of the reality it's the state of the industry today garbage in garbage out right like and this is also why sometimes not intentionally we're like tie all the way back to culture, why there might be negative culture. Assuming that we're all good human beings, what, what's more than likely happening is the leadership team is reacting based on the garbage data that they have in front of them. Right? Like, so they're not intentionally trying to drive negative culture, but the data they have tells them that this is the right decision to make. When in reality, the entire company's been feeding fiction data to the team and like it's not it doesn't do any it doesn't do anyone any justice and the leadership team is really just leading with misaligned information garbage information let's take a quick break to share more about our sponsors in this podcast i talk a lot about all the realities with my guests you know mixed reality augmented reality virtual reality all the realities And I've got a new message for you from my friends at Avail. Let's talk about the new reality, which is that content, as I've talked about in the previous message from them, both wants and needs to live everywhere. Long gone are the days of saving files to your local hard drive or to a single on-premises server. In order to solve remote collaboration, information has moved to the edge. The cloud is king. And the number of cloud services out there dictate that the number of storage locations will continue to grow dramatically. Where do you store your files? 
BIM 360, OneDrive, SharePoint, Box, Dropbox, AWS, Azure. Chances are you probably saved them in some weird combination of those that I just mentioned and more. Well, here's the point of this message. Avail hides the complexity of where content and information resides. What file to use used to be your biggest concern. Now it's where do all those files live. Avail takes where out of the equation, which means that with Avail, you can actually find your mission-critical and not-so-critical files too, right when you need them. Avail helps get you the information you need faster. Go to getavail.com today to learn more. Systems and Standard Operating Procedures You already know that's how to build a profitable business and find the freedom you want. You need systems and procedures. But you struggle with choosing the systems you need most and how to implement those systems quickly so you can get back to doing what you love most. The Designing Your Business Masterclass series was created by an acclaimed architect and business consultant, Douglas Teeger, FAIA, to help fellow architects and engineers run their firms more profitably while maintaining a healthy work-life balance. Douglas grew from a solo practitioner to become managing partner of his 30-plus person firm and then later sold his firm so he can do what he does today, helping architects be more successful at Teeger Consulting. On the third Wednesday of every month, Douglas dives deep into an essential topic that will strengthen the profitability of your firm and make it sustainable for growth in the years to come. Register now for the Designing Your Business Masterclass with Douglas Teeger at bqe.com slash masterclass and start implementing powerful systems for the profitability you need and the freedom you want. Every live masterclass session includes AIA continuing education credit. And when you visit bqe.com slash masterclass, you'll have access to the full library of past sessions on demand. The Designing Your Business Masterclass is free and it's brought to you by our friends at BQE, the makers of BQE Core, the software that makes it easy to manage your projects and people for maximum productivity and ultimate profitability. Register now for the next Designing Your Business Masterclass at bqe.com slash masterclass. That's bqe.com slash masterclass. And now let's get back to our conversation. Kudos to my previous CFO who who said, I don't care if I want the numbers to reflect what actually happened. And I don't think every firm thinks like that. There's definitely a lot of kind of inner team dynamics where there's pressure from certain individuals who are in charge of time on projects who are pressuring people to put less or to move it somewhere else and do all these things, which which paints a picture that shows that something is happening that is likely not happening on that project. Right. And, and that to me is, I'm, I'm really interested. It is a distortion. And I'm wondering kind of how monograph, what do you message in this space around this kind of behavior that I mean, we see all over the place? How, how do you guys take the lead and try to influence for better in this way, in, in this part of the industry? So I think, I think the one thing we always have to remind our our customer base and the message that we're trying to send is there's a strong historically a strong link between the amount of time you work and how I bill against it. And I think though important, 
there are two tied to the hip. I think it's important to understand how much time it takes your team to pull off the work is an internal KPI. How much you invoice is an external KPI. And you have to understand that they're, they're closely related, but they, don't, they shouldn't have an inherent relationship to each other. They, they should align. When, when you work way too many hours and can't invoice enough, well, that's a misalignment. But that does not, it should not drive you to essentially put those hours elsewhere. Because how are you ever going to reflect on that project post-project and not repeat the same mistake? You won't have it in front of you. So we have to essentially start understanding that tracking time is an internal metric that you and the team should operate against. And an invoicing metric is, is what the principal and the leadership should be focused on as an external measure of how well the business is doing. And there's two different measures. And again, to, the, to my previous CFO's credit, when explaining that to, to a team who there was obviously issues going on, it becomes an opportunity to ask why something is a certain way and actually have a conversation and not just assume the worst thing, not assume the worst scenario. And that to me is, again, like to their credit, because it's, it's about understanding the dynamics of the day-to-day of the team. And architecture is a messy process and things happen that are completely out of our control all the time. And we have to react and deal with those things and put out those fires. And that's, the reality of our day to day and and if somebody can actually say okay that makes sense then it relieves everybody on the team to say okay wow i'm really glad i was honest and put down the right number of hours because now they understand what i'm going through and we can we can build from there rather than just somebody putting out their hand and getting a slap because they put too many hours on the project here's the fascinating thing that like drove monograph in the early in terms of why we why we do this we realize is most organizations don't really look at either of these metrics until the end of the month and even at the end of the month uh you spend another month to reconcile the numbers and you might actually not look at the numbers until two months later on what happened two months ago totally realistic the numbers that you just put uh, out there yeah the the cadence is too long and the problem is well if that persisted two months ago and we have not made any changes because we just discovered it now two Guess months what's later. still happening, right? <laughs> we, we've compounded on that problem right. for, for two whole months. And if you think about architecture being a messy process, I also think of architecture as being like a giant Titanic ship. Right? It's really hard if you go off and, and, and essentially navigate off the right navigation and you're off rails for just a little bit, but you don't catch it. Two months later, it's really hard to like steer that ship back. It's a really big ship. The amount of problems that you've allowed to compound over the last 60, 90 days is too deep now. This is where I think the role of monograph, the role of software, generally speaking, is so impactful. Like if everyone's logging time daily, you have now a daily sense of like, where, like are we on track or are we not? More real, and a now lot more pro- real time in that in that regard, exactly. Mm-hmm. Which also allows those fixes to be a lot quicker and a lot easier to keep the ship forward. For example, if we spend this week working on a deadline, so might sound common to a lot of our list the listeners here, and and we work, we put in a lot of hours, more than we 
foreseen because there's, there's a lot of different circumstances that, that just surfaced up this week. But it's just one week. We can make now fundamental changes to like how we work on the project next week to course correct. If we allow this to happen for like 90 days straight, an entire team, oh my God, like, like I would imagine the CFO is just like, I, I, you know, it's really hard to fix this problem. Like we've, we've just consumed too much of the feed too early and we're, we're now back, back against the wall with limited options in terms of how to like fix this. Yeah. Go back to your gas gauge analogy earlier and, and just get some, get some duct tape out and put it over your gas gauge and don't look at it for, for a month. Let's we'll see what happens. <laughs> Who knows if you're just going to like start the car one day, it won't start. It's no gas. <laughs> or and, and you or you're know. in the middle of going somewhere and it just, it's gone. Right. And what are you going to do? It's so important. Yeah. It's so important to have that real time feedback. So getting back to this idea of, of the messaging, the thought leadership, whatever you want to call it, that you guys put out into the world regarding, and I know you guys have, as far as I know, as far as I'm aware, I'm giving you all the credit, practice ops, practice ops, hashtag practice ops. It's, it's all over the place. Section cut conference, LinkedIn, uh, you've got a bunch of great people posting a bunch of great content all over the place. And, and so give us an idea of how you, the, the way that I frame this is I stopped working in the industry so that I could help work on the industry. And I feel like that's what you guys are doing as well. And so I feel like there's a, a kinship there. So tell us about practice ops and tell us why it's important to you to go beyond your software solution and talk about the larger problems of the industry and address those challenges and get out in front of them. So that, uh, I mean, so that there's awareness, but also so that they know who to go to uh, when, when they need that help or they want to get that feedback. They need those sounding boards and, and you guys are providing a, a, a place for that to happen. It's a big topic. Like what, what, what would you like to know? Like, why do we choose yeah, to do it this way? I, I think, I think, cause there's a lot of firms or a lot of uh, firms isn't the right word. There's a lot of startups. There's a lot of tech companies out there who provide a very particular service but aren't also addressing the larger fundamental problems in the industry the way i view it is it's all the same for us and it's a lot faster to address the elephant in the room quicker today and essentially allow the entire industry to know that like this is important this needs to be resolved someone needs to work on it it's not easy uh, we'll love to get as many voices around the table to talk about it. And guess what? Like, yes, Monograph doesn't fulfill all of practice ops today. But we sure damn have a reason to accomplish that over time. And our, our vision for like the, all the, the, our vision for what Monograph will be, what will it be like, let's say 10, 20, 30 years outward looking, is that we do address all of practice ops problems. And business problems within the industry, and actually systemically go even deeper. Right, the way the way I like to talk about monograph when we talk about the vision of what we're trying to achieve is a full system of record for everything built end to end. To accomplish that, well, one we have to acknowledge that it's not going to happen overnight. There's a lot of work we have to do. There's a lot of conversations. There's a lot of strategy. There's a lot of building. And there's a lot of growth that has to continue to occur over the next many decades for us to truly say we're a full system of record of all things built end to end. 
I can't even imagine the the benefits that would come out of that system. <laughs> I'm my mind is just racing about about it. So anyway, continue. Sorry to sorry to interrupt. It, it, it's like super exciting. I, I think this is also outside of culture. It's like having the right sense of purpose when you're looking for for a firm to join. Is there alignment that like we want to solve this problem? And if the problem is great enough, people will come. And the right people. The right people who will find this life fulfilling. Like this sounds amazing to achieve. Because like the vice versa is like extraordinarily painful. If you think about it, like uh, we have medical records. You can easily find my medical record. You can easily find my academic record. I would advise not to. It's not that great. We have driving records. Right? Like you, you can absolutely figure out how many moving violations I've had in my teenage and early 20s. Uh, also not great. But like, do we, do we really have a, a system of tracking the records of buildings? Even if we did every firm, it would be different. Right. And that, we'll that's be siloed. what I imme- immediately think of is how, how that just doesn't serve the industry in a beneficial way. Because you think about the 2030 challenge, you think about sustainability, you think about material usage and supply, you think about all of the constraints that we're seeing and how, if, if you were to compare even two firms together, and that's why I wanted to bring this topic up because, and, and think about it from the perspective of working on the profession as a, as a kind of a neutral facilitator, even though, I mean, you're a for-profit business and all those things, but the ability that you have being outside of the day-to-day workings of being an architect gives you the insight to solve this problem for the industry. Absolutely. I I think it's extraordinarily hard to solve this problem if I was still an architect, right? Like you just, we're not, I wouldn't be empowered and, and with the right permission to like go ahead and tackle this. Or with the lens to solve it for the industry versus solving it for, let's say, the firm that I would be in, right? And I think that's the fundamental biggest difference of being, let's say, a technology professional within a large architectural practice. Fundamentally different than like being external and trying to solve industry-wide problems. Yeah, right. The, the problem sets are extraordinarily different and way more difficult. Inside an internal firm, like you can solve a simple workflow. The workflow is already defined and you're trying to streamline that workflow. Once you start to leave that and start to think about the industry, it was like, well, how often is that applicable? Should it be applicable? Does it apply to only firms of certain typologies, a certain scale, uh, a certain makeup? Does it only apply to firms that are in the United States? These are all like Market segments, regions. Yeah, you could think of all the different variables in that equation. Which I find extraordinarily exciting. As as from a design background, these are design challenges. And it like is a the, design problem. Yeah. I agree. The, the bigger the problem, the more the more excited I am in terms of trying to figure it out and solve for it. Yeah, it is a wicked problem in that in the truest sense of the of it. It it makes me think of how if a firm did try to tackle this and many firms have right they've got their database they've got their on-premises old school Dell Tech database that they are you know they're policing it and going in there and doing all this stuff but but it's very much a it's not doing anybody else any good and I feel like that's been a, a downside to 
the firms that have taken the initiative to do this but only keep it internally, it becomes maybe a differentiator for them, but it doesn't help the whole industry look at this information that that our industry gets labeled as uh, where where there's some some players in it who who are doing a terrible job at it and there's other ones who are doing great at it and it it just brings it. The, the ones who aren't doing it are bringing the whole industry down when it comes to this because we can't measure anything as a as an industry. All we can look at is individual firms. Yeah, I, I will also argue that if projects do happen internally, there are, my bet is like ninety nine percent of the time it's a reactive project. They're not taking a proactive approach to solving the problem. Like there's already a problem, and they're they're now being very reactive to just solve the problem. And, and I think at the end of the day. It's a, it's a database, but it's a database that's not feeding the right information because it's not being very proactive. And they're not looking for the opportunities of what that data tells you. They, they might not have been asking if the data is clean. Well, and then how, how realistic is it for that tool to have a life beyond just being that one reactionary moment? right? However long that moment is, but it's like there's no incentive there to continue to use it if you answer the question from for whoever's asking it, then it's going to be like, phew, now we can get back to the, the way we've always done it, right? We can forget about that thing because we put out that fire. Instead of it being foundational moving forward, it's very difficult, yep. yeah. Yep. I, so I have, I have a, well, obviously for a lot of reasons, a strong opinion that like this should be uh, a problem that's solved externally uh, where that's the, that's the entire mission of an external organization. Right. It's, a, it's a monograph's entire ethos of existing is to solve these problems, um, not in a reactive way, but really be proactive and not just how we move the needle today for your business today, but how do we continue to build good behaviors and good trends and good workflows that are optimized for for the future to come, and not just constantly being reactive and for the whole industry, right? And I, that's where I, I kind of wanted to go with this idea with the next in the conversation is around the resources that you guys at Monograph are putting together for everybody. Could you speak to some of those resources? Well, we, we have a lot. Like the conference, which happened recently, it's completely free. It's an open platform and dialogue for us to essentially host conversations around the topic of practice operations. We do our best to host weekly webinars around very uh, specific thematic topics from industry leaders uh, that stems from not just always practice operations, but occasionally design, occasionally business development, marketing, finance. We we want to make sure we cover all the moving pieces, all the moving pieces of a business, and all that's free. Also on our YouTube channel. Um, and then we write as often as we can, and that goes on to our marketing uh, blog channel. And you guys also did like a, a report on burnout. You're looking at other kind of contributing factors to the business of architecture in a more holistic way, and that that was something that has come up on the show before as well. I, I find it fascinating that there are, are a few companies who are looking at the big picture and then making those tools and resources available for everybody no matter like you said leaders a minute ago and i'm thinking well who gets to decide if you're a leader well you do right any anybody who's listening gets to decide if they want to participate and contribute to that or not and and i i applaud you guys for doing that because that is something that is rare 
in the industry to create resources that are available to all to kind of raise all boats as we move forward for those who are willing to to participate in it. It's part of our mission. Like if we're not doing it, then why why do this at all? We're like, I have a personal mission that this needs to get accomplished. Um, and I do not see any reason why any of this content either should be gated or should be or anyone should pay for it. Like this is this is information that's vital for the entire industry across professional statuses and like tenured within the industry. It's important. It's important enough that like we should do it. Uh, and we'll love to see more organizations do it. It will lift, like you said, it will lift all boats. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's the purpose of this show as well, right? It's to create this content and and record these amazing conversations that I'm lucky enough to participate in to make them available to everybody. And that's exactly what you guys are doing as well. It's and to me, that's contributing to this fabric of sharing and getting better together because we want there to be a profession in the future that is successful right? Like it's not just barely getting by. It's not just reacting to everything that comes down the pipe. It's, it's proactive, it's successful, it's valuable. And, and I mean, I know that you believe that architecture is valuable and can change the world just like I do. And I think it's really an interesting story that you have with, with Monograph and your co-founders to create something like that. Oh, and you can do it in four days every week instead of five. (laughs) Five plus. <laughs> it's incredible. It's a great story. Well, you know, the problem's so big, it's never going to get accomplished immediately. So like the, the difference between a four day and five day is irrelevant. As long as we are motivated and there's pur- purpose in everyone's life. And I love, I always love speaking to new class, a new class of hires that are not architects. And, and really advocating for like the, why this is important where the industry might mean a lot less because they don't come, they don't come from the industry, right? They're, they either come from a background in, in sales, they might come from a background in computer science, they might come from a background from business development or business generally, uh, or an ops background. Like, you name it, we have, we, have, we have all the roles necessary for us to continue to operate as, as a technology company. I love having and starting a conversation of just asking everyone to take a minute and breathe and look around you. And, every, and I asked, what do you see? And I was like, well, all, 100% of the time, the answer is like, well, we're remote first. So like we're home. Typically that office, ta- that table that they're working on has a window. You look outside and there's other homes. And there might be a school. There might be an office building. There might be a park. There might be a bridge. There might be a hospital. There might be a school. If you think about it through that lens, our entire reality is done by architects. Touched by an architect, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Our entire world, everything that we, like even down to the parks and the ur- ur- urban landscape that we interact with is done by, by an architect in some capacity. And then I, I set context even more. They work in really old archaic tools if they have tools. And guess what? The tools are historically exclusive to only big firms because they're extraordinarily expensive, which means 90% of the industry, which is not big firms, is small firms. Do all this work on the back of pen and paper 
Excel spreadsheets, sticky notes, and sketch pads and sketchbooks. That's it. That, those days should be numbered. I am extraordinarily frustrated that architects are this important. 90% of the industry are small, and they do not have software at hand to help them. Yeah, that that's a huge issue. And it's also... I mean, there, part of that is how do you communicate with people at scale to get the word out? And there's obviously a lot of great communities. You're building a community to do that. Podcasts like this are, are a way to do that for people who flip those on while they're working away in the studio to get that exposure. Are there other ways that you guys have explored to get the word out, to message to those, to put a, a, a timestamp to say those days are actually numbered. Like how, how are you getting that message out and, and explaining why that's important for the industry? We do a lot of industry related works so like that, that includes our podcasts, our webinars and the conference and, and so on uh, for thing for things that are not within the industry. We do most, we focus mostly internal, right? It's, it's the number one priority is that our team, which is still 80 to 90%, not architects, understand the magnitude of the problem that they're working on and be motivated that they're contributing towards solving that every single day, a small, we're moving small little steps every single day of solving that massive problem. And that should be extraordinarily fulfilling and exciting. I like that. That's a really interesting way to think about it is, is to convert brain cells on the people that you have in your firm to understand, to have that empathy of this industry, which includes more than just architects, right? But I know you guys are very focused on architects, but it's it's a very complicated relationship within AEC. And it seems like, uh, I mean, obviously you can start with the people that you have right now and and the conversations that they're going to have, the people that they're going to touch and be exposed to, and, and that there's, you never know how the message spreads. And so I think that's a, that's a great strategy. Con- control your controllables. I, I, I feel like I say that at least four or five times every single day, uh, regardless of what team I'm talking to. And I think if you, if you do it, if you control your controllables and it comes from the right place, and you do it with purpose, and you understand the why before you address the what and the how, everything else will take care of itself. Mm-hmm. That's great advice. I think uh, firms could learn a lot from that. There's so much effort put onto external marketing. There's very little put into internal marketing. <laughs> those, those are kind of two different things. <laughs> they're, they're two, and you have to do both. Well, like, as a business, I, you know, we, we can sum up... Georgia's entire team is the marketing team. Their job is to get the word out to the public. So like when we talk, like I measure his progress based on his success of getting this word out to the entire industry. Part of my job from the, from an operation perspective as a co-founder, as a CEO, my job is to drive that cohesiveness internally. That, that messaging has to happen internally or you can imagine like rolling a boat, like everyone's rolling different directions. That's not good. We need everyone rowing at the exact same pace in the exact same direction every single day. I can tell you that's one of the hardest things to do, um, especially in a remote first company. Yeah. I mean, and maybe we'll just finish up with this, but maybe you could speak to that a little bit more because uh, there's, you know, as, as offices are struggling with bringing people back into the office or not, 
one of the big things I think that that I experienced over the pandemic was leaders were hiding in hiding. I'll just characterize it that way. There was a, a lot of intentional uh, non-communication because it's easier. <laughs> That's an easier choice to make. So, and, and so maybe just give, give us a picture of why that is so difficult because I mean, I think we kind of have a sense of why it's difficult, but being remote, but it's, it's, you have to do it on purpose. You have, I'm sure you have a lot of kind of tools in your tool belt to, to ensure that it happens. And, and obviously your job depends on it happening, but could you speak into how you're conquering that particular difficulty and give, give some people some good advice on, because again, I think leadership could be anywhere. It it could be, you don't have to be a quote unquote leader to show leadership in this way. So what, what kind of tools and tips and ideas do you have to share with people? I I think this is what we got right from day one and stems all, it starts with culture again, right? And culture is, is derived from your values and your morals. One of our values, which is really, really important, is to remember that we are here to do the hard thing. And we should ask ourselves whenever we start choosing the easy path, are you living up to the monograph value of doing the hard thing? The hard thing is to hold complex, difficult conversations. The easy thing is to ignore it. To avoid it, right? Yep. Mm. The, the hard thing is to like make space for those conversations. The hard thing is to really question, how do we start meetings? I, like This is pers- personal favorite. I've shared this a couple of times where like, I, I don't really like asking, how are you doing? Because I know the answer all the time is, I'm fine. Fine. I'm doing okay. <laughs> I'm good. Yeah. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't facilitate any human connection. Mm-hmm. It's very being, a dis- being a distributed company, like I, I, is, it's known that we don't have, let's say, body language. I can't get any other sense to tell me otherwise. So like, we like to start meetings with, if you really knew me. It forces, it forces the answer to be more than just fine. Because that's not acceptable. If you really knew me, I'm fine. Like that's, that sounds weird. Uh, but like if you really knew me, like I had an amazing day yesterday. I did X, Y, and Z. I ran for, I, I, I ran, which I haven't ran for a long time. Like these, these are really, really important for organizations to think for themselves. What is, what is the right way to start meetings? Are they are they putting people first, and are they doing the hard thing? It's a difference also between like a transaction and a relationship. There are many quote unquote relationships that are just transactions. They're very surface level, and I imagine a CEO knowing your people is extremely important. And again, I think that's a trait of true leadership is just un, is knowing what people are dealing with, what they're going through, what their successes and their failures are, and knowing all that and like keeping notes about it and checking in on people and all of those things that really make it about relationship. And anyone can do it. It goes back to what you're saying. Like leadership doesn't, doesn't have, doesn't have any association to title. Right. And, and a new employee straight out of grad school can have amazing skills that embodies leadership. And it can be learned. 
Absolutely. And this has been a fantastic conversation. I, I, I want to give you the opportunity to anything else that you want to talk about, ask of the audience, promote, like tell it, tell us anything that, that you want to leave us on here with from, from Robert, from monograph, anything like that. Uh, you know, I think it's, it's best. It's most appropriate for me to just say, we are here for you as architects. We're building for the industry. Uh, and we love to continue to foster that relationship, regardless if you're a paying customer or not. Our job is to solve complicated problems, and we need all the help we can get. Yeah, that's that's a fantastic marketing that you just did, Robert. Because I, you know the the idea of marketing being, and I'm sure George and Joanne and the, the whole team would would agree with this, and and it probably even comes from them is that marketing is letting people know what you stand for, what your values are, what you believe in, so that when somebody is ready, they know who to come to. It's because they're rarely ready right then <laughs> for, for the thing that you're offering. And so for you to end it with that way, I think is entirely appropriate and within the values of your company. And it's, it's fascinating to watch your success. It's, I'm absolutely rooting for you guys and, uh, and continue doing working on the hard problem and and doing the important work it's it's really been great and and i i i'm rooting for you like i said a minute ago thanks evan and thanks for making the time this has been really fun it's been a great conversation all right i'll talk to you soon thank you to avail for their support of this podcast episode visit getavail.com to see their holistic approach to content management today. Thank you to BQE, the makers of BQE Core, for their support of this podcast episode. Visit bqe.com slash masterclass to register for the next Designing Your Business Masterclass. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out, and of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E Troxel. Talk to you soon.